Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Rachel Jepson. She's a senior editor at Holloway, and it was a really great conversation that we had about reality and about non-duality and about writing and how to find out what it is you're here to write. Hope you enjoy this episode. If you do, uh, please find us on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom. We're also on Spotify, on Stitcher, and you can also leave a review if this episode in some way moved you. I'd really appreciate that. And also, I want to let you guys know that I am doing four breathwork sessions a day, uh, one at 8 a.m., one at 11 a.m., one at 2 p.m., and one at 6 p.m., and all those times are in Pacific Standard Time, San Francisco time. Um, eventually, I want to build a tool that will help me to display the time in the local person's time, but that doesn't uh, exist yet, or at least I can't find it. Please let me know if you do. And if you'd like to join one of these breathwork sessions, just find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop I I I, and send me an email. Uh, send me your email address, uh, and then I write a letter. I write an email every every Sunday, where I give the times and the links to these episodes through to these sessions throughout the day. So have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest here is Rachel Jepson. She is the senior editor at Holloway. Uh, and what do you guys do at Holloway? So at Holloway, we publish long-form reference works on um, complex topics related to modern work. Uh, yeah. So it's half sort of a publishing company, half a software company. We also create, I don't, I'm not a, an engineer, <laughs> hmm. but we also create a, a, a product in which we publish um, these, these very long-form uh, guides. Um, it has search and sort of ways to make this expert content um, navigable, discoverable, accessible. It's just- That's cool. Yeah, and I interviewed Andy <laughs> Sparks, the CEO, a while ago, so it's, it'll be cool to get your take on it. So for the That's first it. first question, uh, what has writing done for your life? Oh, um, <laughs> what a good question. Um, so I think it, it does different things at different times, right? I think especially when we're if you're the kind of person who is infatuated with literature, books, I think the physical object is something worth talking about. Um, as a young person, I think we all sort of have this thing in common of thinking that literature writing um, acts as an escape from your life. Mm. Um, I think many of us, especially if you start at a young age, sort of look at look at the writing life as you know, we, we are told that it's this solitary thing, um, which is insane. Uh, you know, you go to the woods and you work on your, on your passion and you couldn't possibly do anything else, right? Mm. Um, so I think, you know, this is, I, I could answer this question for a long time, but, you know, it, when you get older, um, I, I think I did use writing as an escape from my life in a very literal way when I left New York City. Um, <laughs> I had sort of done, you know, I, I left college and, and went to New York to work in publishing. Um, and I did, it. I did it. Uh, and it was terrible, Stuart. <laughs> and so I said, you know, this is bad and I don't, I could, you know, I wanted to literally escape that life and I used writing to do it. It, it brought me across the country. I moved to Montana for two years, um, to, to study writing, um, a graduate program and teach out there. Um, and it wasn't until I think that ultimate escape 
I started writing about writing a lot differently uh, when I became a teacher. And I think that's when I really understood what, what writing does for our lives, right? Um, rather than a transcendence, it's really more of a transport, mm. more of a transportation, um, not judging different ways of living, not judging yourself for having lived a certain way, but giving you the opportunity to see how lives could be lived differently. Um, mm. It's a plane. It gives you planar access, <laughs> not this sort of scoping out and seeing the world as it really is. I think that's a mistake. Mm. Um, uh, and now, now it's so much about community. I mean, I think in my work as an editor, um, I mean, I pursued editing. Uh, it's what I was doing before grad school. And, and I came to it very differently after grad school, after having uh, experience as a teacher. Uh, and that's really what it is about at Holloway. Um, that's what we try to emphasize in our work there with the writers, the many writers that we work with, um, is really how writing connects you with other people in the process of creating it, um, how it connects you to other bodies <laughs> mm. in a very specific way. So mm. lots of things. <laughs> yeah, uh, and this reminds me of this book I've been reading called The Book of Why. Uh, and it yeah. is basically a book that's talking about a revolution that the author is, is uh, saying is happening within the field of uh, statistics, where uh, for a long time, statistics was like correlation does not equal causation. Uh, we, th those, we can't talk about causation. And now what this author is saying is that causation, we can talk about it and we can actually teach computers how to look at it. And she, the author talks about the ladder of causation uh, and uh, what separates human beings from other animals. Uh, uh, so on the first ladder is uh, seeing or making associations, simply observing. Uh, and then this, the, this, and that's where animals are and that's where uh, software is currently at in terms of AI. Mm. Uh, and then on, on the second level is uh, doing. So actually making an intervention. Um, and that's where, you know, our hunter and gatherers were and stuff like that. And and then on the third level of causation is imagination. So actually imagining worlds that don't exist uh, and then playing around with those imaginations as if they're objects. And, uh, and, mm -hmm. and so this, and they're actually the artificial intelligence models that are being developed off of this causal models are actually outperforming the, uh, the ones that are uh, purely associational. So there's something to it. Not everything, we can't figure out the causes for everything. And, and this is more mm -hmm. uh, for other things. So. It's interesting because writing seems like it's really integral to us as a species for that imagination and kind of making that imagination uh, uh, clear and on paper and, <laughs> and creating it and making it real almost. What do you think about That's that? A, yeah, that, this is an interesting, I just drew myself a little graph as you were, as you were talking about that. Oh. And um, I, think, I think one thing that I like to avoid is, is um, <laughs> Just uh, human exceptionalism mm. <laughs> in general. I think that what, this is actually one thing that I think, depending on the kinds of things that you read, um, depending on if you like poetry, perhaps, um, writing is often the thing that gets us to, to the most basic possible understanding. Um, it's a revealing, it's not a complication. Um, and I think, so when you talk about, about this third, of, third tier of intelligence being imagination, I think so much of what we do with art is about desire. And I think that all desire is 
imagining and animals have that too every impulse that they have comes from you know an instinctual desire um, or a learned or a learned one that's what training is that's what animal relationships are uh, and I desire is a basis it's a it's a form it's like a fundamental form of imagining mm. um, I could have this things could be different um, it's interesting. I think this reminds me. Uh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not a, a religious. I'm not. A, I'm not a god. A god fearing person. I'm. I, I'm an atheist, but um, not but. And I also am a. I'm a. I'm a person who has studied um, the works of, of John Milton, um, and particularly. Have, have you read Paradise Lost? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> so this is this is a book that's just very. This is something that I really love to talk about when we talk about. Um, what it means to be a person and what it means to love and imagine and sort of try to try to rid our lives of dichotomy, which is also a form of imagination, um, to will away sort of misunderstanding by coming up with, with systems that work, which is certainly the work of technology as well. Um, anyway, there's, there's a sort of subtle um, thread in Paradise Lost where, uh, I'm sorry, just for, for those who, who are not familiar with the story, it's just, it's the story of Adam and Eve. Um, <laughs> it's, it's Genesis. Um, but it's Milton's interpretation. It's his poetic interpretation. Um, in, in any case, there's, uh, there's a sort of thread that goes throughout the, um, the book where before... Eve has eaten of the fruit, as, as we say, uh, before the fall in pre-lapsarian life, that's before the fall, uh, there are many moments throughout the text when Adam and Eve have dreams, and they will dream something that they want, and it just is. It just suddenly is. There is no action. So this, this number two, this doing, this intervention um, was what you, was, I, I believe, what you said. That hunter-gatherer, right? How appropriate um, mm -hmm. moments in, in intelligence. And that doesn't exist in pre-lapsarian life because to dream is to have. So what's the point of imagination when there is no desiring? It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, what else is our, is our form of action? What precedes action but desire? And desire is not a uniquely human trait. And they, you know, Milton really hits on this point because after, after they eat of the fruit and essentially, you know, Adam essentially commits suicide for Eve because he knows he'll, he'll die if he eats it, um, which is another, you know, beautiful, terrible thing. But uh, <laughs> in any case, there's a distinct moment afterwards where they, where they try to want something and, it, and they don't get it. It doesn't just appear. They, they don't just have it anymore. And they have to act. So there's that, you know, all of human life, really. What, what doesn't fall into that category of wanting and then doing something to get it? <laughs> I don't know if that, if that was a good response to your question. <laughs> that was excellent and, and allowed my imagination to kind of go off into a lot of different places. But uh, uh, <laughs> the, what comes to mind is that... There's this kind of um, I'm losing it. Damn. It's okay. We're talking about intervention, desire, imagination. Oh yeah, love. And, 
was it love no it was it was it was this it was this dreaming and then having it show up uh yes no no separation between the dream and the the manifestation almost Uh, Uh uh-huh exactly and then outside once they've eaten of the fruit uh fruit of knowledge that then all of a sudden that that flips on it and you're like, oh no, there's this gap between desire and the manifestation or the receiving. Yes. And yes. That, that is really interesting because uh, I've been, uh, my life has been like filled with a bunch of struggle for the last seven years of like wanting these mm. things, needing these things uh, and then not happening. Um, uh, and then mm-hmm. just watching like, why, why is that? Why do I want those things? And is, are those things necessary? Is this, uh, uh, why why is my thought created palace of a preferred future uh, wh- why is that somehow better than what is happening right now when I am mm-hmm. safe right now I have all of my needs met right now I mean my basic needs um, so so what is this 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 and it feels very very similar to that state of being like oh I'm out I'm out of the the garden now and it's like life yep. is really difficult and like uh, I, I don't know what to do about it it's kind of a constantly a struggle so uh, yes yeah but it's yeah. all relative and it's all subjective because it's you know i'm not on you know tier one of of the poverty level where i'm like where i'm like i don't you know it's like I, it's i'm not walking 20 miles to get water i'm not you know doing all these things so it's like but yet all, all those things still remain as kind of a habitual form of thinking which is really interesting yeah habitual form of thinking even denial right that mm-hmm. tends to be or or perhaps by definition, is a habit. <laughs> um, I think, um, yeah, you're not you're not walking to get water. What do we do with those kinds of thoughts? They're not necessarily helpful, are they? To put yourself, you know, to sort of transcend yourself. You know, do you find those moments to ever be helpful to you when you say, "I don't have it that bad. I must transcend this feeling of desire." Uh- if I'm really in a state of just like, like suffering and, and like, and uh, victim mentality, then those thoughts do help. Uh, but in mm-hmm. general, I find that they are not too helpful and it's all kind of relative. So uh, it's still subjective. Like it's still like, I feel, I sense this lack. Uh, I haven't started to work with kind of a, a way of um, a mental attitude towards these things, which is that instead of focusing on what I lack, I focus on what I, what I have already. Uh, and then uh, that, kind of brings this sense of uh, almost abundance to my life um mm-hmm. uh and uh yeah so it's really interesting but there are these core things in my life which are like oh, i really want those things um and uh and, and and they're not not appearing um uh and and it's quite quite a struggle but yeah it's it, it's interesting how 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 do you deal with that how do you what is your relationship between wanting or needing or uh, or something yeah. not having it come into it? <sighs> you know I, it's a it's a good and frightening line of questioning i think um i think i often go too i go too far you know i i think there's there's the kind of of spiritual investigating that you do um that one does <laughs> that can lead us to this. Well, I, you know, this is what I have. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm blessed. I have this gifted life, you know, whatever it might be. There's a line between acceptance and gratitude and um, a lack of care, like a letting go. I think I tend to let go too easily. Mm-hmm. Like I often will go from, you know, okay, I want something 
I focus on what I have. And that leads me to thinking, well, what of this could I give up? Is that too far? We, we should want, we should want more. There's not, I mean, like I'm saying, right? That's, that's how anything has ever happened is desire. Mm. It's not, it's the cause of suffering, right? Of course, <laughs> desire is the cause of suffering, but all, it's also all of arts and progress. And, and I think that to go further in that and want nothing and want to give up what you have, there's a lack of gratitude in that as well, isn't there? Interesting. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's what the, the tantrics talk about the, uh, the, and, and I'm not talking about neo-tantra, which is what people assume when, when, when we say tantra, which is, which is, uh, the, the sacred sexuality, what I'm talking about is tantra in the, uh, ninth century Kashmir, India, where, uh, a spiritual practice that had innovated and said that in, instead of this, like, I'm going to try to transcend des- desire, I'm actually going to follow desire to its end and figure yes. out what is the ultimate, uh, what is the ultimate, uh, desire that this, that this, that all other desires spring from. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that, that has been very powerful for me. Uh, uh, how and- so, how so? Uh, well, because there is that fundamental desire, I'm getting closer and closer to it, and uh, and it, and and that one is like a. It, it, the closer I get to it, the more um, the more flow-like life, all of life becomes. The more uh, uh, the more just states of um, acceptance and uh, states of fullness uh and emptiness sometimes but uh but emptiness in this beautiful kind of like like uh sense that uh the more those are likely um and and that's that's the thing particularly with what i'm seeing with what technology is doing because now technology is offering us the ability to achieve or the ability to fulfill every desire on demand um, at any time, most desires that uh, on demand, uh, and uh, that is making it more and more difficult for anyone to take the transcendent route and say, "I'm going to transcend desire." Uh, uh, and, and so, this 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 kind of tantric path with a K allows us to then live in this world where there's just desires everywhere, and the the key uh, key practice or whatever is is that. Uh, we notice that we're desiring and then we eat something and in the tasting of that eating in the eating of that uh, we then taste it and we feel that taste that sense of taste and then we witness who is tasting that um, and that can lead to this kind of sense of awe and wonder even in this just kind of like very basic thing of tasting a good food uh, that leads to this this uh, original desire and it's and i think that original desire is to is to is to be aware and have awareness and consciousness of what's actually happening but that could all uh, yeah okay i love i love that i i have two things to say i think the idea that we have as you say okay there are desire we have all these desires and they're they're fulfilled instantaneously today right play the show dispense food you know masturbate to porn, whatever. It's all immediately at our fingertips, right? So I think the, how, how one might characterize that is actually a society living, 
completely without desire. Mm. Desire isn't just wanting and having, again, like this prelapsarian thing, there is no desire there. It's if you have it, you mm. don't desire it. You, you, just, it's, you just have it. When, there, when you're lacking this practice of like desire is longing, it's longing, mm. right? It's a yearning forward, it's an, it's an action. And in some ways it's an act of faith. And when, when you don't have the opportunity to be in pain with desire, you have no, mm. you have no action and you have no ability to put it into context or to put it into perspective mm. um, or to grapple with what it, how it might define you or not, right? Mm. To compare it in any way, um, to judge it in any way. There is no judgment. That's, that's the loss of, of what we have with this optionality now. We mm. don't have longing. We just have fulfillment. Mm. And it seems like that adds a nuance, which is that um, there's desire, the desire that you're talking about, this longing, and then there's craving. Uh, and right. I guess that's, that's right. more what our society is, is, now, is, is now completely offering all um, opportunities to satisfy craving, but then craving just, you know, as soon as the one is, is, is uh, satisfied, then immediately a new one arises. Um, yeah, that, craving is closer to habit or addiction than right. it is to... Desire. to longing or, or desire, mm. uh, I think. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but I think this, I want to bring, bring, to bring up the systems thinking again, though, I, I think is, it's a really interesting here. Like one of the, one of the things in, in that disturbs Adam in prelapsarian life is that the seasons the star, this is what happens. The stars move across the sky, but the seasons don't change. Mm. So, he, and he wants to know why. He's like, shouldn't that have some meaning? Doesn't that have to mean something? Doesn't that have to move some other, you know, cog in the system? And I would know it. And he, he says this to one of the angels, to, I think it's to Gabriel. And, and the angel is like, just please just don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. <laughs> and there, so, you know, there's, there's a lot at play here, but I think it's, you know, I think that sort of that craving that they have to say, you know, I want this thing. And then it appears instantaneously mm. is very different from wanting to know why the stars move and the seasons don't change. That's a different kind of yearning, mm. right? To what banish those kinds of dichotomies that just don't make sense. Mm. Well, and that seems like a kind of knowledge or um, understanding. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, do we desire, don't we desire clarity? Don't we desire, we desire understanding. Mm. Don't we? I, I, I mean, I do. <laughs> <laughs> It's a large part of my life is yeah. trying to figure out, figure out, I'm very confused and then trying to figure out what, what is real, what is, what is not real. Um, yeah, exactly. And why are things the way they are? I mean, that sort of, you know, the way you were characterizing it earlier, you know, I, I, I desire things and I don't have, I don't have them. I don't know how to get them. And you're sort of like, why don't I have them? <laughs> mm -hmm. 
why doesn't this, why don't these pieces fit together? Why don't these pieces make sense together for me? Mm -hmm. And so bringing it back to writing, how does writing help you do, how does writing, what does writing do for your, for the sense of what desire is and uh, longing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good question. Mm -hmm. So there is a, um, do you know, uh, uh, do you know um, Friedrich Holderlin? No. German poet, writer. Uh, He writes, he has this sort of kind of, peculiar little piece of writing where he talks about becoming in dissolution um which is sort of (laughs) i don't know if on that on its face that makes any sense at all um but he writes in this sort of short essay about um uh you know can i actually pull it up i can read you this little thing i have it that'd be great (laughs) i always have this handy All right, he writes, in between being and non-being, the possible becomes everywhere real and the real ideal. And this, in the free artistic imaging, is a terrible but nevertheless divine dream. (laughs) What do you think that means? (laughs) So that's really interesting. Uh, So typically poetry uh, is difficult for me to decipher and to... Mm -hmm to find the meaning for it. But uh, I really liked the uh, between being and non-being because that's something I think about a lot. It's yes. like, what is uh-huh. non-being? What is the difference between being and non-being? What, 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 what does that mean? But he says, the difference between being and non-being is what? He says, in between being and non-being, the possible becomes everywhere real and the real ideal. <laughs> uh, interesting. Pretty pretty wild. Well. Um, yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, this this kind of gets into something, because I, 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 I got into philosophy accidentally almost, because I started uh, doing a lot of meditation practice purely from mm-hmm. a practical standpoint of like, um, you know, I'm, I'm suffering and, and the people tell me that this, this practice helps me uh, get out of suffering, so how do, I, how do I do that? And so I started to, to do a lot of meditation practices, and then I realized, though, that this philosophy piece helps uh, with with the suffering as well, so I started reading a lot of um, uh, uh, Indian philosophy, uh, mm-hmm. and I and then now I've become much more interested in in Western Greek or Roman philosophy, and this seems to go to this Platonic ideal, uh, which uh, I don't think exists uh, in, in in Indian philosophy, uh, which seems to come about through the the mathematical log- logical reasonings of, um, of of Greek or Roman philosophy, which is it. it and so we have this ideal that that there is this thing outside of our senses that is the perfect embodiment of of chair or a perfect embodiment of right. <laughs> human or you know all these different things. And I think he he in this poetry he seems to talk to that, which is the real and the ideal, because um, the I've, you know the the ideal is absolutely impossible to find. It's you can't you can't become the ideal, um, mm-hmm. and reality seems to be all that we have and and. It comes back to this, just like we are human, we are infallible, we are uh, fallible. So that uh, there is no, uh, there is no even like why? Why do why do we even want to? Why is it important that there is an ideal? Why should we strive towards an ideal when all we really have is reality? It will never fit to the to the ideal. What do you think of that? Right. Yes, and I, I think that's that's what is going on here. He says it's part of the free artistic 
life imaging, he calls it, uh, you know, imagination sort of picture um, to, to call the real the ideal. Um, obviously, this mm. has, you know, and he calls it, he says, this is, this is a terrible and divine situation. <laughs> and it's terrible because it's apolitical. Mm. Um, you know, it's good to want more. It's important to see the real as, as a horror. But in its, in its art, perhaps what he's saying is that in, in the way, in what an artist is allowed to, or can allow themselves to engage with, everything is of a plane. And I think that's true. I think that's difficult and true. If you can't engage as, with everything as, on this, as real, then, that's apolitical. <laughs> so I, I think there's a lot of, of sort of what, what are we, how, how do we approach different sort of kinds of material? Um, and with what cowardice? I think when it comes to, you know, to, to, to your question, sort of how does, how does writing, how do I think writing can sort of help with, with desire, with a sort of pain and suffering? And I think, a lot of young people, well, a lot of people, because we're trained to see writing this way as young people, we all are in America, that certain things are for certain people and certain things are for other kinds of people. I had a um, colleague in graduate school who called this rhetorical cowardice, mm -hmm. um, sort of the, the fear with which we approach certain kinds of writing um, certain kinds of art and we are afraid of engaging because we don't want to get things wrong I think that's a really big problem uh, and we're afraid of engaging because if we don't think we're the audience for something that's usually because of what our bodies look like mm. uh, and we're you know I'm not a this this book was written, you know, I can't read James Baldwin because I'm not a black person. That's mm. a real thing that students say. Mm. Uh, that's a real thing that adults, people say. Mm. You know, I'm not going to understand this. This wasn't written for me. I'm mm. going to get it wrong. And I don't want to do that. And sometimes that comes from a place of respect, right? I don't want to misread the meaning behind this text, whatever. But it's it, that's also coming from a place of fear. Anyway, this is a roundabout way of saying mm. that, you know, I think the more, there's a lot going on here. There, there, there's, there's the idea of bringing, bringing the body back to learning is important here in diminishing fear. Mm. Um, and I think when it comes to what writing can teach us about desire, what I mean when I bring up the becoming and dissolution is sort of this, idea that a true engagement with writing and with reading teaches us to be okay with confusion mm. that confusion is actually clarity most of the time um and i didn't i kind of got a little bit off field there with the, with talking about fear as an as an audience person but i don't think it's actually unrelated uh, at all, really, because, again, if you are taught that there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer, which we are, when it comes to writing 
and when it comes to reading and mm. engaging with art. We're, we don't learn how to be okay being confused. And if you learn how to be okay being confused and to understand that that's usually the most that we can get from learning, mm. <laughs> then haven't you learned something about desire? Because if the crux of desire is, at, or maybe not the crux, but at the heart of it, there's some, there's some, something about us that demands to know why we don't have the thing that we want, like we were saying earlier. Mm. Mm. So this is all complex. I'm probably making this too complicated and it's no, simple. I, I just can't say this well. I'm not saying this well, but the, <laughs> the point is what writing can teach us about desire is to be okay being very confused. Mm. It, it, it actually makes a lot of sense to me and <laughs> okay <laughs> the, the, there's this the, i want to i want to touch on the fear part and the confusion part because it's all very relevant uh well then there, there is no clarity without confusion confusion is always a prerequisite for clarity um uh, that's what i believe sometimes that. it's the end point <laughs> wait sometimes clarity is the, sometimes or? confusion is yeah. i mean to to, to yeah. say that that in art, the real is ideal, mm. is to say that this thing that doesn't make sense can't make sense. Mm. And that's it. End of story. Mm. There is nothing else going on. Mm. It just doesn't make sense. Mm. And that's fine. That's its, that's its truth. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I bring this up as a question, not as a well, belief. Although I do feel like I believe that. To be well, that, and that, and that, if if we ask ourselves, if the audience asks ask themselves, uh, what is death? The the answer to that question is is confusion, because we as this people <laughs> are are not able to go to that point of non-existence. So it's, uh -huh. it's by its nature confusing, confusing, and life yes. ends in death, uh, and 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 so there is there is this this kind of inherent confusing nature to it also try envisioning the entire universe that's also very confusing you can't do that um it's and so so these very basic things about life like our environment this universe that we're that we're a part of is beyond our intellectual understanding um as are many things as like even yes. even, even the statement i am Stuart or i am um i am a man is 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 false uh like I am biologically a, a, a man, but I, what does that mean? Because I is not a good signifier for the, um, the, like the universe within me, which is just this, this, like I contain multitudes of, of, of existence and, and like that I, that one word I does not, it's not a very good representation of that. Um, and, and so it's like, yeah, I, I agree that that confusion is often the, Endpoint, and it's this the really cool point you you give, which is, can I be comfortable in that confusion? Uh, is really fun, and I want to try that because um, that's that sounds uh, interesting to do. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, yeah, I those were the per those were perfect examples. Death, the scale of the universe. Yeah. I, I think. 
the best way to tell <laughs> what you're dealing with, I think, it, you know, when the question that you're asking throws itself back at you and asks you, then it's the answer. <laughs> Wait, let's go into that. What does that mean? You know, when you say, when you say, what is the scale of the universe? Mm. And suddenly the question isn't, what is the scale of the universe? It's, can we ever under possibly understand an answer to that question? Mm. Then that's the answer. Mm. When the question throws itself back at you, it, it's the answer that you were looking for. That's the answer. Confusion, unknowing. Death is the same one. I, who am I, is the same one. Yeah. Uh, Which goes into this, this, this thing you mentioned earlier about school, because school teaches us that there is a right answer. Yes. Uh, and usually that has to do with what the teacher thinks the right answer is. Um, and, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so then, do you think that's the reason why people are so uh, averse to being confused? Do you think that's a conditioned thing? That yes, I absolutely do. I absolutely do. We have to know the answers. We have to, and I'm going to speak about American education because mm -hmm. that's my experience. Um, and it has specific sins. Um, yeah, so, you know, we teach, we teach Cartesian duality. We, I think, therefore I am. We, we deliberately separate bodies from brains, um, which is abusive <laughs> for so many reasons. Mm -hmm. um, we keep from we keep students from being able to ask questions with their bodies, um, which is mm. something um, something Franz Fanon, the the, the black philosopher um, scholar, writes in Black Skin White Masks. He says, uh, "Make me a body that questions." Uh, is the line in that in that text, um, and. Uh, <laughs> I like to pause. I want to, I want everyone to pause there and think about that. Make me a body that questions. Um, and not a body who, uh, <laughs> but in any case, you know, we, we ask students basically to sit on their hands and learn the language of the oppressor. We do this to children. We do this to all kinds of children. We don't let neurotypical students stand up when they're learning. That's wrong. That means you're not paying attention. Um, we we tell them to do things that they they're 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 not that they don't want to do. That's not helpful to them because we try to tell them that they're not supposed to be physically engaged in the space that we put them in. It's a jail cell. Uh, you know this affects our this the documented reasons why why limiting the you know, the scope and use of the body in, in learning is, is damaging to all kinds of students, neurotypical students in particular, but all kinds of students. Um, and it also makes us, it makes us very, very fearful. Um, it makes us fearful of engaging in text. It makes us very fearful of conversation, engaging with each other. Um, and it, it, it makes us scared of change. There are... This just makes me sad, this conversation. <laughs> Talk about such things. <laughs> um, what was your question? What did you ask me? <laughs> well, I'm, I don't remember now, but, but, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, something you brought up is, 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 is uh, sparked something in me, which was that uh, I, I am very, I believe I'm pretty 
neuroatypical um and uh school for me was a nightmare and uh, oh yeah and it was like i was stuck in the seat and and uh, they wanted me to focus on things that i was not interested whatsoever in focusing on and that movement part was is key uh, although i didn't recognize it at the time and then mm. i started uh you know i've done the university the same thing happened in university i mean under a different thing but but uh, and then I found it in yoga teacher trainings. That was actually where I found this ability to uh, the openness and freedom to actually use my body uh, uh, to discover and ask questions. And that, that is really interesting. I've never heard of that mm. before, having the body ask a question. I've thought a lot about the mind asking a question, but what is it? Yeah. What, here's a question for you. What does it mean to uh, have a body ask a question? Mm. So I'm going to bring up another book here. Uh -huh. um, there is a, I've had everyone at Holloway read this book, so they're going to listen to this and laugh at me and think <laughs> that I only read one book in life, um, but that's okay. <laughs> there is a, um, there's a, a pedagogist, Robert Yagelsky, um, and he, he's written a lot about the body in the classroom. He also writes about ecology uh, and writing experience. Interesting cat and he has this book called writing as a way of being which i first encountered in a pedagogy course um graduate school and this is the subject of his of his life's work basically how do you become a body that questions how does the question of the body become a way of enacting the person that you are um and and that's the word that he uses the act of writing uh in that i might i'm paraphrasing enacts the relationship between consciousness and the world around us. Uh, so, what does that mean? That sounds kind of that sounds kind of wild, right? That sounds kind of kind of academic and out there. But there's a very real moment. People who have taught writing will will know this, especially I think to undergrad. Well, no, it's all to students of all ages. Although I love undergrads, they're so awkward. Um, with themselves, which is important, right? It's like teaching middle schoolers again. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's anyway. It's I, I think the word the word that that a person could use here is uh, it's ontological. Hmm. You know, you're you're sort of you're engaging, um, you're engaging the unknown physically, um, which is such a strange concept, and it's really what writing is, Stuart. It's like mm -hmm. you have this idea in your head maybe you know best case scenario as a writer you have an idea in your head and you have the words for it and you just write it you just write it down right uh that's not really how it works most of the time for most people writing is a is a process of thinking you usually don't know what you really mean until you've written enough to figure it out mm. And that's a physical process. And if you're typing, I don't care. I, I don't really buy into this. Like I love physically writing and I would prefer it and I would prefer books, but I really am sick of this argument that like, you know, typing isn't writing and eBooks aren't reading. Like just mm. please get over yourselves. Um, and it's, that's a whole other conversation that we could have about, you know, <laughs> affordability and um, ableistic argumentation, mm. et cetera. But this active point is, this act, this physical act of writing, whatever form it takes, it is an un, 
unraveling sort of of thoughts. You don't think it before it's written down, which makes that physical manifestation an essential part of the thinking process. Like you ask anybody, people don't have a thought and then they write down that thought. They write and think simultaneously. It's a single functioning act. It's a single function, really. You are, as he, as Yagelsky says, that you're, you're enacting the relationship between your consciousness and the world around you, mm. which makes that process, makes your physical presence in the world a, a way of asking and answering at the same time. That's really interesting. And so for me, because I, I agree for, for the last, maybe before about six months ago, for the last three years before that, it worked that way for me until I got really solid on writing as this tool that you're talking about. And now the thoughts do come out in forms exactly that I can write down, um, which is really, <laughs> um, and, and I think it has a lot to do with improv as well. And also doing this podcast and, and, and kind of yes. choosing yeah. to uh, express myself through words, uh, mm-hmm. both, uh, I mean, it's been primarily through speech, which gets into the, my next point, which in, in this book called Job's Body, which is actually a manual for uh, body workers. Uh, he talks about the, you have this inspiration and you have this thought, uh, but that thought does not trans- get transformed from imagination into reality unless you enact it through these three different ways. And those three different ways are either um, uh, writing, speech, or acting it out, like miming it, um, or, or just creating some sort of dance or something like that. Uh, and those are those the only three. Those are the only three ways we can we can we can take something from this plane of imagination and make it real. Um, and that's been really helpful for me. That's interesting. That's really interesting. What do you think it means to make it real? What does that mean? And that, yeah, so when we have a thought, you know, we we don't really know a lot about about consciousness and 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 from a neurological way, but we we have this idea that. Uh, you know, when we have a thought, it usually comes in the form of a, a connection. And, and that means that many different neurons are starting to synapse together and they become excitable when that thought then gets, um, uh, you know, reminded of in the future. And, and so there's, there's that. So I would say that unless we make it, put it into this physical manifestation, uh, that the likelihood that that thought will come again is very um unlikely uh although there are repeating thoughts of course so we so we do have this repetition of of thoughts and uh and this is something i've been thinking a lot about because when i go out into the woods um i I, you know i i I get all these ideas that i don't normally get um and i if i don't write them down i forget most of them uh and so they know and then it seems like they never come back uh and so so i want to yeah no sorry Finish your thought. No, that is, that was the thought. Mm-hmm. That was your finished thought. Yeah, I want to challenge our use of the word real. Mm. I think that's really not a helpful way of thinking about things. And it's another one of those sort of things that we get from, from contemporary or fairly contemporary from public education in America, any education in America, which is that, you know, that knowledge and learning are all preparatory and mm. that ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, elementary school for middle school, middle school prepares you for high school, high school prepares you for college, and college prepares you for the real world, right? As if your life isn't real until you graduate with a four-year degree. So, you know, that always, that always made me really, really just 
prick up at the, at the use of the word, um, which has been helpful to me because I've noticed that we use it a lot mm. in ways that are hurting us. Mm. Like when you say, we were talking about this text and how it's helped you, you're, you're, you were saying, you know, imagination, you, you know, writing sort of allows you to turn your imagination to something real. What it allows you to do is to turn your imagination into something corporeal, which is very mm. different. It's very different. And, and, and the reason why it's more powerful to talk about it in a way that's physical is because it's the power of writing something down is that it becomes shareable. Mm. So I would challenge this and I'm going to, I'm going to try to reverse it and see what you think. Instead of imagination arrow, you know, writing reality, that's, I'm sort of drawing a picture here. Maybe you can, <laughs> I can't show it to you, but you know, you have your imagination and then you write something down and then now it's re now your imagination becomes real. If we remember what Holderlin says about in the artistic imaging, the real is ideal. Then we're starting from a very different point. We're starting with whatever, whatever it is that we're thinking is the thing that we want to translate. It's real, it's ideal, it's our artistic imaging. It, it, is, it is possible to deal with, it's addressable. We're the audience for it. We're gonna put it in our, you know, we're gonna put it through our brain pan machine and we're gonna come up with something. And what we come up with from that reality that our brain, that our brain, that ideal reality that is in our brain right now, through the act of writing, and this is, this is kind of weird, but through the act of writing, you're actually turning that thing into an imagination. Hmm. Imagination mm -hmm. yep. is a better way, possibly, of thinking about the physical thing that you produce because any written piece, anything that you have written down physically and put into the world, it's an act of faith and it's an act of desire. This is just what we were talking about, right? At the beginning of this conversation. It's an act of desire. Like these things don't just exist because we had to put them out there. They're calls to action. They're, call, they're, they're hoping to be read. They're written for for communities and for the unfamiliar, they're written for a reason, they're written for an audience. And sometimes the audience is just an older steward mm. or you know, a lover and you hope to God no one else ever reads it. Mm. Or it's written because you wanna be on the big bestseller list or it's written because you wanna reach you know, the, a community or, or a parent. It doesn't matter. It's an act of desire and it's an act of faith. And that's what makes it an imaginative act. If you keep it in your head, it's not really imaginative. It's just static. Mm. It's plain. Mm. It's, it's, it's fearful. And how can we call any of those things imaginative? Mm. It's the act of making it physical or not making it physical. It's the act of of defining it through this physical act, of understanding it through this physical act that makes it imaginative. That uh, gives me two, two strands of thought we can go down. The, uh, the first one, which is a little more shaky, so I wanna get that one out first, uh, is, oh yeah, that this, that this sharing it and getting it outside of the head makes it into this plane of imagination makes me think about how um, this idea that we are separate individuals is not quite the, the case because most of the things that I think are, are reflections of what other, what other people have shared and what other people have put. Of course. So it kind of brings it into this collective imagination. 
Uh, and then another point, which was that there is this, um, there's an analogy to what you're talking about, about writing it and then having it become imagination. And it's a feedback process, but an automatic feed pro feedback process uh, where the, mm -hmm. the, the, the paper becomes part of our brain as well. Um, that is a good analogy for what happens uh, whenever we're um, moving around uh, because most people have this idea there's two types of nerves there are sensory nerves and then there are motor nerves uh, and most people put those into separate boxes like okay right now I'm sensing oh and then now I'm gonna go into movement and then now I'm gonna sense but they're actually co-determinants all the time so they're happening as I'm moving I'm also sensing and that's readjusting my movement and that's all happening way way below my conscious thought these are all things that are happening in my spinal cord essentially um, yes. with, with like a, a, a overall picture that's then sent to my brain and creates a, a map of my movement. But sensory and motor are the same thing. So it's, it's, uh, those are two points. I'd love to hear what you think of those. Yeah, that's perfect. And I mean, yeah, you have a very clear grasp of what it means that of this like idea of writing as a way of being because for every, everyone, the way that we move through the world is what defines the way that we think. As you say, they're, they're I mean, they're co-continuous, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and for people from, you know, from marginalized communities, this becomes an even more, I mean, we're all affected by, by the master language and master narratives, but mm -hmm. to, to sort of deny that these, that these like that, the, your physical presence in the world and the way that your mind uh, the way that your thoughts work and where your thoughts go isn't affected, they don't affect each other, is, it's not only is it insane, it's also abusive. It's to say that this huge part of yourself, this, your brain that sits on top of your body <laughs> is like, as if it's, as if it's somewhere else. It's this sort of weird religious treatment of the self that is in such denial of the way that we actually move and live and, and the way that we work, that desire works on the body and the way that the body then works on the mind and, and vice versa, you know? Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things that this reminds me of is just, just to mention, you know, this sense of, of putting, putting things, putting thought within the body, like placing sort of the root of thought in the body. It's, it's the way forward when it comes to communicating well with other people. And I think I'd love to hear your thoughts about, about, you know, your, how your relationship with, with your physical life, which has been become such a big part of your life, if that's changed the way that you interact with others at all. Um, but I mean, when I talk about, when I talk about the corporeal being more imaginative than, and the thoughts that we keep in our heads part a big part of that is that other bodies get to access it right that you're then whatever work you've produced whatever thoughts you had that you that you offered you know that they to understand them as an offering that other bodies will be able to communicate that work back to you and contribute to it in this sort of living you know in this in this conversation Mm. Uh, is that's really where thinking takes place it's it's not in your head it's mm. outside of your head mm. always mm. always i think mm. well and this gets to the point of we we don't really uh, neuroscience doesn't know what consciousness is um and uh it is unclear whether it happens in the brain or not um and so yeah science doesn't have an answer for 
uh, that question uh, from from what I know. I, I might be wrong on that. Um, uh, and then to to the question about me and how my corporality has changed. So it's it's really interesting because you know I've been practicing yoga movement for a long time, and uh, there is. Uh, the yoga movement that I was learning from my, in my early twenties until my thirties, uh, was a product of globalization, which I thought was actually a product of, uh, of, of, of history of authenticity. I thought it was an authentic yeah. tradition that had been passed down for thousands of years. turns out it's not, uh, uh that, uh, that, that it's, it's a product of globalization and, and actually a product of the camera mixed with, uh, nationalism uh, on on Indian um, Indian nationalism, along with this weird strain of uh, theosophical thought from Madame Blavatsky, a Russian woman who went to America and then India and then created a new religion, and then that religion mixed with uh, Indian nationalism and this calisthenics practice that had been brought mm -hmm. from from England with uh, and had been taught to the Indian national elite, uh, and then uh, and so it, and then created yoga, and then these these Iyengar, this yogi uh, who performed these postures, was a performer and performed for the camera. Uh, then, then brought these these to the U.S. and then we we did our own spin and then brought it back to India. Um, and and so that is actually like uh, not a very long. It doesn't have a history before like 1850. Basically, there there are strains of it that that go back, but but uh, uh, but the the like the the real like a lot of it is 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 a, is a product of globalization. So yeah, but that gets into um, maybe what, what they were doing beforehand. And a lot of it was, I believe a lot of it was uh, adapting the body to different animal positions. Uh, uh, and then, um, it, so there's this plasticity in the body that most people don't recognize because we kind of uh, take on habitual forms of, 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 of being uh, in our bodies, physical being. But then if we kind of break those fascial adhesions and, and break apart the tightness and the restriction, which actually is a product of the restriction in the mind as well. It's not just a physiological mm -hmm. restriction. It's also physio it's a, it's a neural uh, restriction. If we can bring some more fluidity into that, uh, I, I wonder about whether new movements are being created. Um, uh, so essentially whether we can, whether there, there are, because like dance, like I don't think anybody 200 years ago was break dancing. I think that's a new form of movement. Mm -hmm. um, and that has been created uh, and then and then uh, innovated, I guess. But but the human body was the same, so they could have been doing that, but they just didn't have access to this new uh, way of thinking about the body. I think. Yeah. Right. Which is to say, the human body wasn't the same. I mean, mm -hmm. in, in, <laughs> if we if we used to think about the human body differently, then was the body the same? Mm. I mean, that's kind of a high question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> man <laughs> but it's also legitimate like sometimes the sometimes the you know the egg comes before the chicken or whatever uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. this is really cool i feel like we could go on for a couple hours but we do we do have to definitely a <laughs> couple couple minutes but uh so usually what I try to do here at the end is that uh, I've, I've gotten a sense of your expertise and uh, I want to get one question out there that uh, can kind of uh, be beneficial to my listeners to understand something about their lives through this. And I guess we've already been talking about sure. that. Your, your expertise is writing or editing, uh, maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, what is the, what, yeah, what is the most important or what is the most 
useful thing they can get from this conversation of all the things we've talked about? What is the most kind of practical understanding of everything we've talked about that will help them to become uh, more creative or use writing as a tool towards uh, self-expression? So this is an easy one. Um, people usually write the word but when they mean end. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. People are always trying to second guess themselves and be, you know, trying to hedge and uh. really we can hold more than one thing in our heads at the same time. You usually mean end. <laughs> yeah. Well, this gets to an interesting point is um, what do you think? So I, 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 uh, I, I was writing this, this newsletter and I asked somebody for advice who also was an editor, but, but uh, you know, about 40 or 50 years older than, uh, than us. And, um, and so, and he said that, and I ended the, 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 the little essay with a question and he said, never end anything with a question uh, because that leaves it open to, to, the, to the reader and doesn't form a habit. Uh, what do you think about this kind of necessity for writing to be authoritative or when is that necessary to be authoritative? <laughs> when is it necessary to invite the reader into this, into this open uh, inquiry? Yeah, I think that guy probably is 50 or 60 years old. <laughs> <we are>. um, <laughs> you know, you probably can answer this question yourself after, um, after this conversation. I think that writing is a, you know, I, I say this to, to people that I work with all the time. I, I think of editing, I call it the long conversation. Um, <laughs> it's really just, and in so many ways, it kind of consider it a preamble to what a writer's relationship with a reader looks like. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, the editor is really the first reader. It's a, editors are, your, are a writer's first reader. That's... That should be how, how, how we look at it. And to this guy, you know, whatever, no offense. Um, I definitely don't agree. And it's, that's no offense because you can disagree and not offend people, but <laughs> hopefully still. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that the more we bring, re, you know, the best, I'll say this. I'm going to stop. I'm getting nervous because I don't like to make people upset. But, you know, the best writing is a conversation. It was made that way. It was made in this imaginative act, this act of faith, this act of desire that people, other people would become a part of that conversation, that they would engage in a conversation with that text and with each other about that text forever or for the time that it is relevant and helpful to them to do so. That's the best writing, period. And it doesn't matter if it's a reference work, like what we do at Holloway. Like, yes, we consider ourselves authoritative. We think it is helpful for people to know everything. And those two things might sound like they stand in contrast. People can know as much as they need to know and still have room to make decisions for themselves. That's what we do at Holloway. We do not tell you what to do. We are not authoritative in the sense that we're gonna say you should definitely do this thing now. We're authoritative in the sense that what we tell you to think about is gonna, is gonna generate a legitimate conversation in your head and with your colleagues about what's, uh, that's useful, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, that, I, I don't think that, that, 
that that purpose of fiction and poetry that's familiar to us is any different in mm. a work, uh, in a nonfiction work or a work of reference. Um, in fact, anyone that calls themselves, you know, a be all end all authority on a topic definitely doesn't fully understand that topic. <laughs> <laughs> this has been very cool. And how can people find out more about what you're doing personally and then maybe what, what, what Holloway is about? Sure. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. <laughs> uh, my, I am at did you write that, um, where I mostly post pictures of my dogs, but sometimes writing tips and things that are going on at Holloway and job openings and you know, yeah, if you have any other, any interest in the company, you can follow at Holloway on Twitter or just go to holloway.com and, and uh, check out what we have coming up and um, lots of opportunities at the company for, for writers and researchers. Um, and if, you know, if anybody who's listened here is interested in working with us, you know, let us know. Cool. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you, Stuart. This was really fun. <laughs>